All right, you should be able to see that New Testament survey there on your screen, hopefully, uh, as I'm seeing it online. And um, so once again, this is just a little bit of a um, review, but the New Testament can be broken down into the narrative section of the New Testament. There are 27 books, and it goes from Matthew to Acts, and the letters are Romans through Revelation. So there's two major sections of the 27 books. The first five are about narratives, so that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. And then there are letters that start with Paul's Romans and end with the revelation given to John the Apostle. Um, another way to separate them as we look at it is into the Gospels, which we're going to look at a little bit more in depth tonight. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, in Acts, um, there is Paul's letters, uh, other letters, and then finally the book of Revelation. Uh, which, once again, is one of those books that either you love or you're scared to death of, right? So uh, we're going to get to that one. Um, but we looked at this chart last week, and, uh, and I know that I'm not always sure if you see exactly what I see on my screen, but hopefully um, you do the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Our, our next section here is the book of Acts that was written by Luke, and we'll get to that soon. But if you read Luke and Acts, it sounds and feels like kind of two volumes uh, uh, really one one story and then we get into the letters and you see that all the first sections of letters are written by a guy by the name of Paul it starts with Romans and goes down to the Corinthians and whatnot and it isn't in chronological order of when he wrote them but they are in the the largest to the smallest that's how they're put together so you kind of hopscotch around what's going on I think the first letter he ever wrote was the uh, letter of Galatians um, the next section of Paul's letters are uh, letters that he wrote not to churches, but to leaders. And so these leaders, as you look, are 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus. These are pastors. Then also there's a guy named um, Philemon that is uh, a part of the church of Colossae. And so that's why I put it there together. And so all of these letters, once again, are put in this order because they're Paul's letters from the longest to the shortest and from churches to leaders. The next section are the other letters that are written by, look, other people that are not Paul. And they are put together as the longest to the shortest. So we have Hebrews and James and 1st, 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude. And then finally we get to the book of Revelation. And as mentioned last week, I'm trying to do it with these colors. This John who wrote the Gospel of John also wrote 1st John, 2nd John, 3rd John, and then he finally got a new name for the book in Revelation, okay? So a lot of different things, but he wrote those five uh, towards the end of the century. So that's just kind of review. And what we want to um, also show you is that if this is the order of what is your New Testament, you see Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts at the beginning and all these letters, but that's the order in which they are in the New Testament. But most likely, this is the date of when they were written. Most people believe that James and Galatians were the first uh, things written in the New Testament. And many people believe that the first gospel was written by Mark, but after many of these letters. In fact, this next slide shows you that if you look at this, um, you'll notice that most people believe that Mark wrote first, and Matthew used Mark as a source and expounded on some of these things. That's why sometimes the passages sound very similar, and then Matthew adds in some details. Luke comes along and writes something very different, and these three are called synoptic gospels. It's just a fancy word for saying like the same gospels. They're, they're telling the same story, same perspective. 
But then you notice down here, who do you notice all the way at the end, John, towards the 80s uh, uh, was when he wrote his book much later. I mean, possibly 20 to 30 years after Mark, Matthew, and Luke wrote their gospel. And the idea is that most likely John uh, saw some things that he loved about Mark, Matthew, and Luke, but also saw some things that maybe had been left out. And so John comes along from a different perspective, and so his gospel feels very different than the other three. Now, we're going to look at um, kind of breaking down these four gospels before we start studying the passages within there, but this will help us. And so one of the things I love to do, this is one of my favorite things to teach in the world, because um, I'm going to show you some stuff tonight that uh, what could happen is, is that after we leave this class, I could read a verse of scripture from you from either Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and you are going to be so smart by the time this is over with. I wouldn't tell you, and you'd like, oh, I bet you Luke wrote that. I mean, you're going to know it. I'm telling you, I'm going to show you some stuff somebody showed me years ago, and it just completely changed everything. So let's look at, at Matthew for an uh, example uh, to start off with, even though I don't think he was the first one written. He is the first one that's in the Bible, and mainly because of how connected the way he wrote is to the Old Testament. So Matthew, the intention that he wrote was that he presents Jesus as Israel's Messiah. That's what his, his goal was. When he wrote his book, his entire goal was to present Jesus as Israel's Messiah. And so he is connecting the dots and really trying to make sure, and this is something for all of us to make sure that we get, that the, the focus on this is Israel's Messiah. So that nation there, right? That is, he is trying to make sure that you realize all of the Old Testament that we've been studying. From Genesis all the way to Malachi, Matthew is put here at first because Matthew is trying to convince Jewish people that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the fulfillment of Isaiah. He is the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. He is the fulfillment of Micah's and, and Psalm prophecies. Matthew makes no um, hiding whatsoever. He is trying to say, all right, you Jewish people, you have been reading for um, 39 books about how we are waiting the Messiah. I have found him. His name is Jesus. And let me show you that he meets all of these qualifications. And, and so what he does is, is he comes alongside and he, he's going to show that. The next thing is that his primary audience, as kind of as mentioned, is the Jewish people. He is um, primarily speaking to the Jewish audience. Now, you and I can read the book of Matthew, and uh, there are certain things that don't make sense to us, obviously, because we're at a different time. We're in a different culture. And we're in a place, honestly, where we, we go and there are certain things that don't make sense. I'll give you a great example out of Matthew's gospel. In uh, Matthew 23, verse 12, he, he writes, he's the only one who writes this, I think, out of the gospel authors. He says, um, to, Jesus says to the Pharisees, uh, you strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. Well, that's probably not a Bible verse that you memorize as a kid, right? And he goes, what? What does that even mean? And for us, we don't understand what that is. But to a Jewish audience, they understood completely. When you filter out a gnat and you swallow a camel, um, that was a practice that back in the day, the Pharisees were so concerned about in their water drinking any type of bugs or something, they would put a filter in the water 
so that when they would drink it, they wouldn't be drinking bugs if they would do that. And Jesus is kind of making a little jab at them and saying, hey, you filter out the small stuff, but you're missing the big stuff. So the Jewish people would have completely gotten that, but other people may not have. And that's why Matthew includes it. And as we're going to see in a little bit, Luke, who's writing to a completely different audience, he doesn't include that line because it would completely go over their head. So really focusing on who the audience is uh, that he's looking at. Um, next here, uh, the source is that he is a firsthand witness as one of the 12, okay? So he's a firsthand witness as one of the 12 disciples. So he is one of those mainstay that stuck around with Jesus for three years, okay? And so one of the 12 disciples. Um, and so obviously he has an up close uh, picture of a lot of what happened. Now, Matthew is also not in the group of say the, the inner three. Some of y'all would know what that's, uh, what I mean by that is that sometimes when Jesus would go on a special trip, he would take only three people with him. And it would be Peter, James, and John, right? Those three got the special things. So, so some of these things Matthew is not a firsthand witness to, and Peter, James, and John would, and so they'll have to kind of fill in the gaps. But Matthew was a witness of, of so much of what took place there. Um, we also know that his occupation, he was a tax collector, okay? So he was a tax collector, so which meant he was very aware and very interested in things that Jesus would say regarding money, okay? Now, Mark, Luke, and John will write about uh, things that Jesus said about money, but as a tax collector, Matthew was obsessed with it, okay? He, he wrote a lot about the sayings that Jesus said about money. And many of you would know this, but Matthew was a tax collector for the Roman government, and he was taxing the Jewish people, right? So did the Jewish people like tax collectors? Not a chance. I wasn't going to say that most people like tax collectors, but especially in this situation, right? They really don't like uh, the tax collector in this situation because Rome is taxing them on what they consider their land, their property. And so Matthew is that tax collector. So obviously he has a lot of people that are not exactly uh, big fans of his. Uh, the date is probably somewhere around the 50s or the 60s. Somewhere within that time frame, he is um, uh, writing the gospel. So once again, if we believe that Jesus most likely was crucified somewhere in the mid-30s uh, AD, um, which means that this is... 20 to 30 years after the time that Jesus died that Matthew writes this gospel, where in some ways that seems like a long time, but some of you also know this. What was Matthew's life like uh, as soon as Jesus was resurrected from the grave? He was on the run. I mean, he was. they were sharing the gospel, and people were trying to slow them down and kill them. And so Matthew was uh, on the run, but then eventually things got to a stable place where he said, okay, we need to compose all this stuff that Jesus uh, did so that we can write about it. And in the same way that if you think about a, in 2020, a president's memoir, you know, oftentimes when a president leaves office, they write a biography. Well, it's normally not released the day after they get out of office, right? It takes a little bit of time to compile and they've got all these extra help. You can imagine this time, it took these guys that don't have a computer to type on and edit and whatnot it took him a while to, to get through it. So there's, there's Matthew for, um, for a moment. So presents Jesus as Israel's Messiah, 
primary audience Jewish people source. He's a first-hand witness as one of the 12. He's a tax collector writing in the 50s or 60s. Um, if you have your Bible, I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. We're going to read a few verses together. I want to make sure you have the opportunity also just to open up your word tonight and not just have to take my word for it. Um, but I want to look at some of these passages uh, because I think they're going to give us a good insight into these authors. So Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Once again, if you were to think through, like, how would I want to start a riveting story of the most important person who's ever lived on the earth, right? If I was writing that book, I don't think that the first thing that I would go to would be a genealogy. <laughs> That's exactly what Matthew does. First thing out of the box that Matthew does, he goes and he writes with a genealogy. And why would he start that? Why would the New Testament start that? Once again, he's trying to connect the dots. These are not two different books. These are not two different stories. These are not two different movements, not two different faiths. Jesus is the fulfillment of what we find in the Old Testament. So if you look in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, he starts off once again saying, hey, this is a book about a genealogy. I'm going to start off. And he says, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Now, most of us would realize, we were listening to that and go, wait a minute. But Jesus was the son of Mary and who? Joseph. Joseph, right? That's how we would normally think, right? So he's Mary and Joseph. Why would they say he's the son of David and son of Abraham? Now, Matthew's genealogy is going to get to Joseph. But before he does that, he wants to align Jesus up with two central figures of the Old Testament, David and Abraham. David was the greatest king of Israel, right? And, he, and, and God promised David that somebody's going to come from your family who's going to reign forever. So Matthew's going, hey, this, this prophecy of the eternal king is met here. But also Abraham was promised the father of the whole Jewish faith. He was seen as the patriarch. It was told of him that one day there's going to come somebody from his family who were going to bless all the nations of the earth. And so Matthew's wanting to say, hey, that prophecy to David, that prophecy to Abraham, this is the fulfillment. And let me trace his family tree to show you that he comes from the line of David. He also comes from the line of Abraham. So in this first thing, once again, he's trying to convince Jewish people, this is the guy we've been waiting for. And turn over a few pages to Matthew 9, verse 9. Matthew 9, 9, and this is, we're going to see something about how back in these days, people would um, come alongside and actually um, identify themselves as the author. And what happens as they identify themselves as the author, sometimes you're going to find something that can be somewhat shocking. They don't normally, especially in these days, they don't come across and say, oh, by the way, um, let me tell you, my name's Matthew and I'm writing this. Sometimes they do, but in this day and time, sometimes the authors did something very, very different. And so here's the example in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. It says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So this is Matthew, but he doesn't say the author of this book is writing this because most of these guys don't want a lot of attention on the author. They want the attention on Jesus, okay? 
So he doesn't come out and just say, hey, let me tell you, this is, this is who I am. But he's giving you a context clue as the one who is writing this. And so once again, the early church and, and all the um, generations after that all knew that Matthew was the writer of this book. Now, let me go to the guy of Mark, which if you have been a part of Rocky Creek, hopefully you remember him well, because we spent a year going through his gospel together. We started uh, 2018 after Easter and finished up 2019 on Easter, uh, going through, 50, it was 53 Sundays, I think 53 sermons, uh, through the book of Mark. And, um, and I, I love this book, but Mark is a very different guy uh, writes in a different way. So let me give you his. Uh, Mark's intention is that he emphasizes Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. His emphasis was that Jesus is the Messiah, but that he's the Son of God. Mark wants to make a very um, big, bold statement that Jesus uh, is the longer way to not just Messiah, but he's also the Son of God, and to show this power, to show this strength about him. He wanted to lift him up. And so Mark is going to show without any stretch of the imagination how powerful, um, how powerful Jesus is, the amazing things that he could do. And to show that not only was he a prophet, he was the son of God. Uh, as one of the most famous passages from, from Mark's gospel is early on in Mark chapter two, when the paralytic is brought to Jesus by his four friends and lowered it through the roof. You remember that story comes in. And one of the things that Jesus says, the guy gets lowered there to the roof. Obviously he's wanting healing. And Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. And we don't hear this quotation from the paralytic, but I got to imagine he's wondering it. I didn't come for forgiveness. I came with my legs to work, man. Like that's, I heard you can do that. And Jesus says, yeah, but there's something more important. More than your legs need to be healed. Your sins need to be forgiven. And remarkably, the Pharisees completely understand what's going on. They say, whoa, 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 only God can forgive sins. And Jesus said, you're right. And just so you know, they have the authority to do that. Pick up your pallet and go home. So Mark is going to show he is the powerful, um, supreme son of God. His primary audience was the Roman Empire. Okay. So Mark was writing to a very different audience than Matthew did. So he's writing to the Roman Empire. And if you know many things about the Roman Empire, especially during these days, what are some of the things that we know about the Roman Empire? They had this place called the Colosseum, right? And in the Colosseum, what did they do? They didn't watch movies. They didn't have plays. They had gladiators. And they would have put people out there that would fight against bears and fight against lions and, and, and fight each other to death. These people are very much so obsessed with action, right? The Romans were obsessed with action. They were obsessed with domination. They were obsessed um, with power and strength. And so one of the things is, is that Mark is very fast paced because he knows these Romans don't sit around and just discuss deep thoughts all the time. They're ready for the action. Uh, and so Mark knows that but as an evangelist that he's wanting these people to understand the gospel, he really speaks to them. Now, one of the things you notice about his source, he's a disciple. He's not one of the 12 though, okay? When I say disciple, there were hundreds of disciples of Jesus during Jesus's three years of ministry. Uh, so sometimes in the gospels, you'll hear something that'll say, uh, well, these are disciples. And then sometimes they'll say the 12. 
Mark was an outlier of the 12, but he was a part of that community that followed Jesus. So he was a disciple of Jesus, but not one of the 12. He also was believed to be a colleague of Peter. Okay. So he had a first row seat to Peter's recollections of those three years of ministry. So Mark was there for some of these things, not all the time, uh, but he was there for a lot of it. But Peter obviously had a unique perspective that uh, most people didn't. So he, he could see this. And so a lot of the information we get is from Peter's perspective. And Mark kind of serves as his scribe. Um, the next thing is that his occupation, we have no idea. We don't see Mark. Uh, he's not fishing. He's not doctoring. He's not tax collecting. He's just hanging out. Okay. And one of the things that happens with Mark is we're going to see Mark does go uh, with Peter on some journeys. He goes with Paul and Barnabas on some journeys. Um, but we don't see as far as an occupation other than he wrote a pretty good book that we, we still love today, right? So it's a good thing, but we don't know about his occupation. And once again, he wrote the 50s or 60s. I would put Mark as the first gospel written. And the reason why simply is because some passages of Matthew and Mark are almost identical, especially when Peter would have a view that say Matthew wouldn't, okay? So on some occasions where Matthew, part of the 12, didn't get to go on this trip, but Peter, James, and John did, Mark has this view that's very specific, that as if he was there, Peter saw it. And so Matthew takes that as kind of source material, and sometimes Matthew expounds on some things or sees things a little bit differently, as we'll, we'll notice here in a second. Now, to get an understanding of who Mark is, I want you to turn over to Mark chapter 14. Because as, as I mentioned, um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't really ever tell you, hey, my name's Mark, and I'm writing this book, right? But there are some very humorous things that happen uh, in this, um, especially in Mark. This is one of the funniest things in the Bible, uh, honestly, at one of the most random times that I believe is given us because in this day and time, because once again, it was a unique thing for people to come alongside and you, you rarely ever said, I'm the author. They would give you context clues for you to assume. Now, if you look at Mark chapter 14, if I'm just looking at the subheadings in my Bible, you see the plot to kill Jesus around verse three. You see Jesus anointed at Bethany around verse 10. You see Judas to betray Jesus. Uh, if you go down a little bit more, you see the Passover with the disciples, right? Um, go down to verse 26. You notice Jesus foretells Peter's denial. So these, this is escalating, right? So this is Mark 14. Jesus is crucified, Mark 15. Resurrected, Mark 16. So this is last moments kind of stuff. You see verse 32, Jesus prays in Gethsemane. Now, let me go all the way to verse 43, and I want you to notice that Jesus is, once again, he's praying in the garden, sweating drops of blood, extreme agony, extreme intense uh, situation, and we're going to read along, and then you're going to notice something that just changes the mood in the story super quick. It's going to seem shocking to you, okay? You're probably going to catch it. But in a narrative that goes around 
global redemptive storyline, there's going to be a detail that you go, why is that even included? So let me read it to you and you'll see what it is. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priest and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, this one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. Did anybody catch a random detail that seems not very important to the whole storyline? Okay. Verse 51 and 52. This is the only gospel that speaks about any young man running around the uh, forest streaking okay um for those of you from the south we know that word right this is the only matthew doesn't mention it luke doesn't mention it john doesn't mention it and so most people believe that this is the author's way of telling you so you remember that night when everything got really tense and all of a sudden the guards started grabbing some of the disciples and you remember that one guy who was so scared of death that he ran away and he ran away naked yeah that was me and this is Mark's way of giving a context clue and not giving his name to it. Once again, if I'm Mark, I'm like, leave that out, brother. Don't put that in there. Nobody wants to know that. But most people knew about the situation. So once again, such a random detail at that point in the narrative is seemingly, why in the world is it even there? And it seems like it's there because he's trying to give a context clue of where he is. Interesting enough, about Mark, you're going to notice that if you study the life of Mark, the reason why Paul and Barnabas went two different ways is because Mark kept leaving the mission trip. And Barnabas wanted to give Mark another chance, and Paul said, I've given him enough chances, I'm done with him. Part, Mark's story is a lot of times fleeing away from trouble, and that towards the end of his life, it seems like he gets settled. So there's Mark, the second author. Let me give Luke to you for a second, okay? Most of you know Luke. What was Luke's occupation, everybody? He's a physician. Yeah, he was a physician. He was a doctor, right? Which was really helpful because if you think about the apostle Paul, he was always getting beat up. He needed a doctor around him, right? So that's why Luke comes along. Well, Luke's intention, it was an investigative finding written to a Gentile man named Theophilus. Now, that sounds confusing. It's because that's Luke for you, okay? He, it was an investigative finding. He worked extra uh, diligent to write a letter to a Gentile man named Theophilus. Now, for those of you, just as a reminder, or maybe this is information for you for the first time, uh, when in, in the Jewish context, that ethnic group of people, they saw there were two groups of people in the world. There were Jews and there were Gentiles, right? So here is, um, there's Jews and there are Gentiles. And so what's taking place here is, is that there is a Gentile man that he is writing to. This is someone else that comes along that he wants to, to get this message across. And so Luke writes his gospel to a man, a friend of his named Theophilus, 
who is a Gentile. Luke is a Gentile as well. So his primary audience are the Gentiles. So where Matthew is writing specifically, specifically to Jewish people, Luke is writing specifically to Gentiles. He sees Matthew wrote a wonderful um, account of Jesus's life that is geared towards the Jewish people. But Luke felt as if he wanted to make sure that the Gentiles got a good view as well. And some of the Old Testament Jewish uh, descriptions in Matthew were going to get lost on the Gentiles. So Luke, as a Gentile, not as an ethnic Jewish person, wants to give these people a great opportunity to see Jesus as one, not only just for the Jewish people, but for all people. So he's, as a source, he is a colleague of Paul. Uh, he interviewed many sources. So once again, Luke was a, uh, he was very much an, um, a huge presence in the early church. He would go and accompany Paul on many missionary journeys. So he knows all of the original disciples and additional people. And he interviewed many sources, very many, uh, that it seems like Luke has certain details of people that was firsthand information that others don't bring out. It seems like Luke was very analytical, which you would hope that your doctor would be analytical, right? You, you kind of want your doctor to really work hard at investigating things. That's what it seems like Luke is doing. And so he interviews many sources. His occupation, once again, is a physician. And so he is very specific about details. He is very articulate in what he writes. It's, it's we're going to see in a second. He is, he's very articulate in the way that he writes. Uh, and also he is very, uh, really eager to investigate the side of Jesus as it reveal, uh, goes with some of the miracles that would seem like someone who was uh, worked through science for so many years would be just surprised by. Uh, the date, he, he probably wrote his early 60s. Most people believe that Luke was written a little bit later than Matthew and Mark. And as someone who came in, uh, once again, years later, to say, hey, Matthew and Mark, that's wonderful that you guys have done this, but I also want to come alongside and I want Luke to present uh, another um, perspective of this as well. And so I want you to turn to Luke chapter one for um, a moment. It's just a couple pages over for you. And I'm going to show you, um, you're going to see without any doubt that Luke was a physician, okay? In his first opening words, you're going to see Luke was not your common author. Luke was not just your simple um, orator. This guy is smart. Okay, he is very deep. Um, so once again, we remember Matthew's gospel started out with a genealogy. Mark's gospel, I didn't, I didn't read the beginning of it, but it basically says this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And John came preaching in the wilderness. They go, whoa, what just happened? And just Mark gets to the point, right? No fluffy words, no nothing like this. Here's Luke chapter one, verse one. You ready for the doctor's speech? See if this sounds like someone who has just a little bit of education. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Do what? <laughs> that was one sentence, folks. One sentence. Now, um, 
I'm not going to ask anybody, but have you ever been in the doctor's office and the doctor just keeps talking and giving all these big words and you go, oh, oh, time out, time out. Am I sick? <laughs> just, can, you, can you break it down a little bit for me, right? Luke is a smart, smart man. His, the, the language in which this was written in Greek, his, his vocabulary is wonderful. His grammar is superb. He is just an educated man. And even the English just says that, right? He's speaking at such a high, um, really deep level. And so, uh, and he's saying, I'm wanting to write this so that my friend Theophilus may have certainty. I want him. He's a Gentile and I want him to know Christ. Which brings us to our fourth and final gospel author, guy by the name of John. Now, in the New Testament, there are two main figures. John, there is John the Apostle, uh, John the Disciple, and there is John the Baptist. This is not John the Baptist. This is John the Apostle or Disciple, okay? Not Jesus's cousin. This is um, John, Jesus's disciple, and also, I believe, his best friend, as we'll, we'll see here in a little bit. Um, so the intention of John's gospel is that he attempts to theologically persuade people to believe in Jesus. That's his goal. He is trying to theologically persuade people to believe in Jesus. He is an evangelist. He is that guy who's going to find an opportunity to share the gospel with a light pole, right? Just say, I go up and I'll share the gospel with anybody. John is that. He is trying to show you, and he writes it in a very different way than Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, wrote their gospel. Uh, so he is trying to get some deep, unpack some deep truth, obviously, that, that he saw firsthand. Uh, primary audience was he wrote to non-Christians. He, he even says many times in his gospel, I'm writing this down so that you may believe. I want you to know that Jesus is the Christ. So this is more than a historical uh, presentation. This is an evangelistic appeal is what John is doing. He is trying to convince these people that they need to follow Jesus. He, as a source, he is a firsthand witness as one of the 12. He is one of the 12 disciples. In addition, he is one of the inner three that got to go on all the special field trips, right? So the Transfiguration, the Garden of Gethsemane, John is a firsthand witness to all of those moments um, and a unique, unique perspective that he has. His occupation, he was a what? He was a fisherman, right? He was a fisherman. So James, I mean, John and his brother James were fishing partners with another set of brothers that are disciples, Peter and Andrew. And so these guys are fishermen. And as we're going to see in a second, what, when you normally think of fishermen, uh, in South Carolina, you normally think of guys who like the outdoors, maybe a little gruff, don't mind getting dirty, but you also know that sometimes they have a uh, propensity in fishing to exaggerate a little bit about the size of the catch, right? <laughs> just a little bit. And so you're going to see John is just kind of a, a just an average guy that he is originally called the son of thunder, uh, and later he turns into a very sensitive uh, pastoral heart, but he is a fisherman through and through. So he's very interested in the times where Jesus would make calls about fishing. The date he wrote his gospel is somewhere around 85, possibly even into the 90s, which you go, whoa, that, that seems way longer than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and, and you're exactly right. So why did he wait that long? 
most likely he waited that long because John was very busy as a church leader and he thought that Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel was sufficient. They were reading each other's stuff. There are also many other people who thought that the disciples believed that Jesus was going to come back at any day. He was near. And so they really, you know, at this point, John's going, you know what? I, I kind of want to now show my perspective and hit things a little bit differently than these other guys did. And so, so he does hit it from a different perspective. I want you to turn over into John's gospel for a second, to John 13. And I want to show you how John identifies himself. Because once again, in the same way that Mark gives you a context clue, uh, Matthew and Luke don't really necessarily include their names, but you can figure out by um, all the different clues that they leave along the way. John is going to leave one, and he has a term that he uses for himself throughout the Gospel of John. Uh, in John chapter 13, Jesus has just washed the disciples' feet, and now he is telling them that one is going to betray him. And start reading in verse 21. It says, After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So the disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Now, just stop there for a second. Why doesn't he just say John? Why wouldn't he just say, he's using Peter's, it just seems very awkward. So Simon Peter talked to the other disciple. Which one? We know their names. Simon Peter talked to the one whom he loved. What does that mean? Most people believe, now obviously, if we think about, did Jesus love all of his disciples? I would think we'd probably all agree, yes, Jesus loved all of his disciples. So why would John say it this way? Um, most people believe that this was kind of the designation that they gave that while Peter was Jesus's kind of number two guy, he was the guy that was going to kind of lead the disciples once he left. John was Jesus's best friend in life. They were closest that while Peter provided some leadership for the group, John was Jesus's best friend. Like they were closer than anyone else. And, and you'll see that through some of the things that he wrote. In fact, um, one of the other things that you notice, I want you to turn over to chapter 20. Uh, if you've ever wanted to know like how much of um, uh, realist uh, kind of stuff gets left into these gospels, what's a picture of, okay, is this real? Is this actual of, of you know, human authors writing this down? You don't have to worry anymore because you're about to see now that this is a real person speaking about real certain things. And you're going to notice something really, this is hilarious. This is one of the top five funniest things in the Bible. And a lot of times we just read it real quick and we overlook it. So once again, knowing that Jesus, John called himself a disciple and Jesus loved, listen to this. This is Jesus' resurrection day. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, I'll just say it, man, the one whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. 
Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now, if you've ever wondered if there is humanness left in the Bible, you just got it. Here are two men still writing the gospel message, and John's going, oh, by the way, just in case Peter forgot, yeah, I can, I can run faster than him. And so John is literally ribbing Peter at this moment because he's not using his name. Once again, the disciple whom Jesus loved, and they started running. But by the way, that disciple's quicker than Peter. He just wanted to make sure everybody knew the entire world. And you can just imagine that everybody wondered, like, will this go down in infamy? Will people always remember this? Uh, apparently, we did. And so, um, you know, if you just think, I would think it'd be absolutely hilarious that if Peter had the opportunity to read the Gospel of John, which I, I don't think he did. But I can just imagine him reading this. John, this is so good, so good. Or did you really leave that detail in there? Come on, man. And so these are just a couple of guys being changed by the gospel. But it's also evidence that uh, they're real men as well. If you go to chapter 21, uh, verses 20 through 25, we're going to notice also at the very end, this is a unique story to John's gospel where Jesus comes back and meets these guys fishing. Says so Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Now, let me just stop there for a second. So at this point, right after Jesus had said, Peter, do you love me? And Peter goes, you know, I love you. He says, feed my sheep. And they're walking away. And all of a sudden it says, Peter goes, what about him? And John won't say his name. He says, the other disciple is the only disciple. He never mentions by name is himself. And, and John and Jesus says, well, what if I want him to remain until I come back? And, the author of this says that there, there's a rumor that went out and said John was never going to die. And then John says, that's not what he said. He just said, what if I wanted him to? What's that to you? Don't worry about it. He said, that's not a detail you need to be concerned with, which makes things very interesting because it believe, it's stated that out of the original disciples, the only disciple that did not die immediately uh, or did not die decisively through an attempt of someone else was uh, the author of uh, John. Uh, John, uh, while Peter was crucified upside down, uh, James, I think, was beheaded. John was put into a vat of burning oil and he survived. And so everybody started to remember that thing that Jesus said, and these guys got scared. And so they moved them to an island called Patmos, which was where pr- prisoners went to die. And that's where John eventually did die at the end of his life. Uh, once he received the revelation of Jesus Christ. So those are the four gospel accounts. Now we're going to do something because you guys are so super smart now. You've got it all down. We're going to do a little uh, survey time, and I'm going to exercise your mind a little bit to do a little game I like to call Who Wrote It, okay? And the winner of this game, um, I don't know what you get because I can't come to your house anyway. But I would, if, if we were in person, you'd get something great. But I, I want us to do this. I'm going to give you... Uh, a scenario, and I want you to consider who you think most likely wrote it. Based on what we just said, I want you to give it a moment. So let me go through these. Uh, I want you to think just for a moment. Don't say it out loud, just just in your mind. 
out of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who do you think had a large number of healings? Now, all of them, let me go ahead and tell you, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all have healings written in them, but who do you think have a large number of healings, okay? Do you have your answer in your mind? I'm not going to make you say it out loud. I just want to make sure you've done the work. Okay. All right. Let me tell you what it is. It is Luke. It is Dr. Luke. Okay. Now, why is that interesting? Well, obviously, because while Matthew, Mark, and John were mesmerized by the healings, Luke was astounded by them. As a medical doctor, he would say, he did what? You mean she was sick with what? And he healed that? And, and so it just mesmerized him. In fact, um, if you look at the Gospels, the only Gospel author who includes one situation like this is none other than Luke, is the parable of the Good Samaritan. parable of the Good Samaritan is only mentioned in the Gospel of Luke. It's not in Matthew, it's not in Mark, it's not in John, uh, only in Luke. And what was the Good Samaritan? Here's someone who's been beat up and he's got wounds, right? And he needs to be taken care of. Luke's the only guy who reports on that. Um, let me give you a couple more. All right, number two, I want you to think through this. More parables on money. More parables on money. Who do you think most likely wrote on that? Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John? Anybody want to take a guess on that one? This one's a little bit easier. Matthew. Matthew, you're right. Matthew is the answer, okay? Uh, out of all, there's a lot of parables they, they'll report on, but Matthew writes on more than anybody. In fact, uh, let me give you this little uh, tidbit. How many references to money in the synoptic gospels? The synoptic, once again, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew includes 44 references to money. Mark includes six in comparison, okay? And once again, most people believe that Matthew got a lot of his information from Mark, but it seems like he expounded on a little bit from Mark, does he not? Uh, if we think about 38 additional references to money, that's pretty significant. Luke, he wrote 22, and he's the most detailed of all of them. So Luke, he writes about money. Mark does a little bit, but Matthew is you got to be kidding me. i got to do what with my wealth? He just remembered this stuff as someone who was a very much person who was uh, down into the list of uh, things like that. The next one, number three, a less amount of teaching material, okay? Less amount of teaching material. Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, who do you think probably had a less amount of teaching material? It was Mark. Mark. He is action-oriented. He wants to get to the point. It's 16 chapters. He is moving. He is shaking. He is going all the way through this. And he don't have a whole lot of time to waste the Roman Empire's time on waxing eloquence about this uh, detail or not. Now, he does include teaching material, but not nearly as much as these other guys. In fact, let me show you this. How many chapters? Uh, if you just want to get a reference about how <laughs> less Mark talks about teaching, Matthew has 28 chapters to Mark's 16, okay? So just to show you the difference in size, uh, Mark gets to the point. Matthew expounds on a lot. Uh, Luke has 24, and they are, and actually, well, Luke has less chapters than Matthew. Luke is the longest book in the New Testament. And then John has 21. So you see Mark is a very different category as far as these other guys. All right, a few more. Um, he prefers saying kingdom of heaven instead of kingdom of God. And I want you to think about this one for a second. Out of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who would prefer saying kingdom of heaven 
instead of kingdom of God. Okay. All right, you have your answer in your mind. You go, I don't know. This is a little bit challenging. It's all good. Let me give you the answer. It's Matthew. Now, let me explain why. Matthew is writing. Does anybody remember who was Matthew's primary audience? It was the who people? Jewish people, right? The Jewish people. And so if you think about the Ten Commandments, commandment number three, do not take the what? Name of the Lord your God in vain. And so there are many people that would say that either when Jesus was speaking to these Jewish people, sometimes he would not, he would say kingdom of heaven rather than kingdom of God, or other people believe that Matthew knew, if I write to Jewish people and I'm throwing the name of God around, they're not going to listen. So he may have changed as far as let me describe that sometimes Jesus says kingdom of heaven. Sometimes he says kingdom of God. I don't want to lose you folks. So I'm going to say kingdom of heaven. So when you look at this, give me the example. If you compare it uh, in Matthew uh, chapter three, verse two, Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Mark says the same thing, it says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand in Mark 1:15, You see in Matthew, he says heaven and Mark, he says God. Just once again, Matthew being very aware of his Jewish audience and not wanting to lose these guys. All right, number five starts Jesus's family tree with Adam. So there are, out of this, I've already mentioned one of them, but there's two of them that have a genealogy. One of them starts all the way back at Adam. Yes, that Adam, right? Um, Adam in the Garden of Eden, Adam. So I want you to think through what your answer is. And it is Luke. Now, why would, why would Luke go all the way back to Adam? Because the Jewish people saw themselves as someone who came from Abraham. Luke wants to go all the way back to where all of us come from one person. All of us come from Adam and Eve. And while they're Jewish people, we all came from uh, God. In fact, uh, let me show you what is said here in, in Luke's gospel in chapter 3, verse 23, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son of Joseph. And then he starts walking a genealogy down. And in verse 38, he says, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. He goes all the way back to say, and I love, I love how Luke put that too, right? He's the son of Adam. And Adam, well, who was Adam's dad? <laughs> Adam's father was God, you know, uh, in a unique way. And so... Luke goes all the way back because he wants the Gentile audience to know, hey, I know you've heard for most of your life that you're not in the Jewish crowd, but you are in, you can be in the family of God because we all come from one person. Um, a few more. Roughest on Peter's character. Who would be the roughest on Peter? It would be Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John? It is Mark. Which is interesting because where did Mark get most of his information? He got it from Peter. So you would think that, you know, Peter would be like, oh, let me tell you all the, the wonderful things that I did, right? Not in this case. In fact, as you look at this, you're going to notice that in Mark's gospel, here's what happens. Walking on water is omitted in Mark's gospel. Not the fact that Jesus walked on water. The fact that Peter walked on water is not mentioned in Mark's gospel. Now, just think about that for a second, because that's beautiful to me. Out of all the things, right, 
that if I'm telling somebody about the last three years of my life and how I got to do all these cool things with Jesus, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep it in the fact I walked on water. Now, it was all about five seconds, but for five seconds, I was a water walker. And what does Peter do? He leaves it out. He doesn't think it's worth mentioning. Why? Well, number one, he fell. But number two, the, the mindset he wanted was not on people, the fact that Peter walked on water, but that Jesus could. So Matthew talks about Peter walking on water, but Mark doesn't. And he got his information from there. Uh, Peter's shortcomings are stressed in the Gospel of Mark, as well as details of Jesus's rebuke to Peter are kind of harsh there, very specific. Uh, as well as there's more details about Peter's denial in chapter 14 over any of the other Gospels. All right, a few more. Includes the seven I am statements. There are seven I am statements uh, included uh, that are deep theological things. And you probably already know what this one is. This one is John, right? So here's John. that He's coming along and he writes these. Let me give these to you. Uh, in John's Gospel, he says, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine. These seven statements that are deep with theological truth all come from John, who had a unique perspective of being there when every single one of those have been taught. Um, all right. This one should be a little easier because we already read this one, right? Starts Jesus's family tree with Abraham. Since we read this one, I, I know you already know this one. This one's Matthew, right? Because once again, he's trying to show to that Jewish audience that um, Jesus came from that line. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, what we see here uh, is that in one one, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Make sure you know he came. And then verse 16, it says, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So he follows that genealogy line right down the path. Number nine, most descriptive of the virgin birth. Out of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, while all of them would think that is somewhat miraculous, who would that have been mind-blowing to? That would be who? The guy who'd probably delivered a few babies in his lifetime, right? So Luke is the one who writes the most specific information about the virgin birth. In fact, if you are reading the Christmas story or, or you hear Charlie Brown and Linus talking about the Christmas story, most likely they are in the gospel of Luke. If you look at this in Luke chapter two, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. That passage that we read about a, a um, wrapped in swaddling cloths, right? Okay, let me ask you this question. Who would even know what type of fabric that Mary wrapped baby Jesus in? There's only one person in my mind that would know that information. That would be who? Mary, right? So most people believe that guess who Luke interviewed? He interviewed Mary. Luke found Mary older in life and said, can you tell me about this? And can you tell me about that? And then because also Luke says some interesting things, he says uh, in like chapter two, he says, and Mary pondered these things and treasured them up in her heart. Well, I know this. No man has ever said anything like that. Women talk like that. I just, I treasured that in my heart. It was so special. And Luke goes, I got to write that down, right? Probably right from the mouth of Mary. Um, number 10, plenty of, plenty of fishing stories. Anyone want to take a wild guess on that one? 
be John that fisherman, right? That's right. John the fisherman is, has plenty of fishing stories. They are included in some of the other gospels, but John has the specific ones that are unique to him. In John's gospel, we see that in chapter 21, verse 9, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out and bread. Jesus was cooking them breakfast out by the sea. He'd already caught some fish for them, and John just thought it was the most awesome thing, and he had to write it down. Uh, it's just a specific fishing story that's there. Number 11, most quotations from the Old Testament. You guys know this one. It has to be Matthew, right? Making that connection there. In fact, let me show you how, um, how many quotations. Matthew has 96 Old Testament quotations in his gospel. Compared to Mark's, 34. Compared to Luke's, 58. And compared to John's, 40. And once again, the, the last three, they have some, a lot of Old Testament quotations, but Matthew far surpasses them um, and, and comes along with actually 96 Old Testament quotations that he's trying to make sure that you see the connection there. I got two more and then we'll be done. Uh, very, re, uh, very, I'm sorry, very detailed and retelling facts. That's what I meant. Not very retailed. That would be a different situation. Very detailed and retelling facts, as obviously I was very retailed in my proofing of this slide, um, is Luke. He is very investigative. He, uh, he interviewed a lot of different sources. In fact, as we look at this passage here uh, in Luke, um, chapter one, verse three, I mentioned this, it seemed good to me having followed all these things closely for some time to write an orderly account for you. He is very detailed. He's getting very specific. And the last one uses the word immediately 41 times. It is none other than Mark. Mark is the guy who does this. In fact, let me show you. Um, oh, wait a minute. I got one little typo there. Let's see this. Okay. Um, in, in this situation here, look, this is Mark chapter one. I highlighted every time the word immediately is used from verse nine to verse 20. It's four times he uses the word immediately. He is, okay, and this happened next, and this happened next, and this happened next, and this. He's keeping the Roman audience on their toes, listening and hearing everything that Jesus did. Uh, I'll show this to you really quick, but if you notice, this is a, a chart that shows you Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's gospel account, and this description of the event. So the promise of John the Baptist's birth, look, Matthew, Mark, John don't include it, but Luke does. All of this birth narrative is all included in Luke. The only other person that even mentions anything regarding Jesus's birth is Matthew. And that is when uh, really has to do with Joseph's uh, story about the angel visiting Joseph, showing that Jesus comes from Joseph's line, which comes from David's line. That's, that's really the whole point there. Um, you go through this. I'll show you something down here around 37, the Sermon on the Mount introduction. The only two Gospels that have anything on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew, uh, and a lot of that is because of remember, a lot of Jesus' sermon. Remember what Jesus said? You've heard it said, don't commit murder, quotation from the Old Testament, but I say to you. And so he brings in a lot of those things. And then Luke is very detailed in a lot of those accounts. Um, if you look down here at 66, the return of the 12 and the feeding of the 5,000, outside of the resurrection, the only miraculous event that is recorded in all four Gospels is the feeding of the 5,000. All four of these guys include that one. It was a very significant event in the life of Christ. 
Um, if I go down to this line 97, the only gospel author that includes the Good Samaritan, someone who has been beaten up and bandaged and cared for his wounds is Luke. If we go down here, I'll show you this as well. If you notice this situation, the healing of the woman with a spirit of infirmity, Matthew doesn't talk about this healing, Mark doesn't, neither does John, only Luke. You see the healing of a man with dropsy and a teaching on humility, only Luke. These are additional healings that only Luke includes that the other guys leave out. Um, let me show you this on 163. A woman taken in adultery is brought before Jesus. Only John's gospel uh, includes that. And some people believe that only John's gospel included that because, and especially it's at the end of his life, that was such a controversial situation that some people believe maybe Matthew, Mark, and Luke were too fearful to even touch it. And John's kind of a, an older in his life thought, who cares? I'll put it in there. Because so many people thought, hey, this is going to lead to Christians just being loose on morality, and they were fearful of keeping that in there. But John includes it. Uh, the healing of 10 lepers, only Luke's gospel showing that once again. A um, couple more of these. If we go down, um, uh, 229, the death of Judas, only Matthew includes that situation. Why would he do that? Because it was a prophecy about Judas's death. And so an Old Testament prophecy is fulfilling. Matthew wants to include that in there. Bribing the Roman soldiers, that was the Jewish people doing that. Matthew wanted his Jewish audience to know. I know you've always heard this, but let me tell you why that happened, Jewish folks. And so he shares that there. And then at the very end, John's conclusion to the gospel, uh, the only one who includes that situation where Jesus finds these guys fishing and he tells them to come out and he, um, to go fish on the other side of the boat again. And he has a, um, a meal that's laid out there for him. He's the only one that does it. So with that, we're going to look uh, next week. I mentioned this last week, but we're going to, pop into these 15 things and we're going to look at incarnation next week about Jesus's birth. And as I've already mentioned this, but the first narrative point is the incarnation. Which two gospels do you think include all the content we use at Christmas? It's going to be Matthew and Luke once again, because they're really fixated around that time. So you guys have been awesome. Do, does anybody have any questions that I can answer before I pray? You guys are good. I've answered all your questions in life. Well, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Okay, well, good. At least on this, right? Thank you guys so much for coming uh, tonight to watch this. Uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll, uh, I'll let you go. Um, Father, thank you so much for allowing us to come together and to open your word tonight and to go through some uh, things regarding teaching so that we can understand the truth of who you are. I thank you so much for this precious church family that would want to uh, spend some time uh, just unpacking um, your uh, word and how it displays Jesus. We thank you for Spirit of God inspiring Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to be able to uh, write these things that we're still talking about and studying today. And so God, continue to allow us to understand your word even further in the weeks to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.